if you follow the life of Jesus, you'll see that as he walks with his followers, so often he is teaching them about how God's kingdom is established on this earth and then how they practically can follow the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus himself. And then Jesus at one point will then turn and say to them, now go do this, just go. I've taught you, now you just, you just need to go do this. And in the, the cycle of, of ministry and, and participation in a community of faith, every week we stand before you as a, as a teaching and preaching team and we give you truths out of the scriptures. And then there are those moments we just stop and say, okay, now go do something. Just go do it. This morning is one of those moments where we have to pause and say, you've been learning, you've been learning, you've been learning, you've been hearing. We've just walked through this whole thing about living dead and, and, and living alive to what God wants. And so we're at a spot today. We're saying to you, go do it. When Jesus was asked, why are you here? He said, I've come to seek and save those who are lost. And, and that whole terminology of being lost really deals with people who are suffering from evil and even have participated in the evil themselves. And Jesus has come to rescue them out of that evil and out of that suffering, out of that pain. And one of those large groups of people who deal with that kind of pain brought about by evil are children who have been abused, neglected, and abandoned. And we have heard what we think is God's directive, especially through royal family and so many of you that are involved in, in, the, in the foster care system to go help give them moments and, and time of, of, of love that helps bring healing. It, it's Jesus saying to us, I've taught you not just go do that. Dr. John DiGarmo understands that. He's, he's had a, a, a rather diverse life. Uh, he was actually a wrestling manager for roughly four years, and, and the kind of wrestling, was WWF kind of wrestling, and, and across the United States and Japan and Mexico. And, and in addition to that, he's been a disc jockey for five years. He also danced and sang on Good Morning America several years back when performing with the international supergroup Up With People. So he's just, he's done a lot of things, but perhaps the thing that's impacted him the most is the fact that he is connected in, to the foster care system. He is married to another doctor, Dr. Kelly DeGarmo, who hails from Australia. They have six children, three biological, three adopted. And currently, they have five foster children that are all siblings. And so we were just talking, as the announcement was made about the spaghetti dinner, it would be a great deal for you. He has his doctorate in educational leadership from Walden University. He's authored several books. He hosts a weekly radio show, Foster Talk, with Dr. John. He's a trainer on the foster care system. What Joel said earlier is dealing with children who have come through that kind of lifestyle and giving them those wonderful moments not only changes the child, but it changes the adult or the parent that... that also deals with that. And this morning, we've invited Dr. John DeGarmo to come and share with you his story. Would you please welcome him? Boys, they always bring up the wrestling thing. <laughs> Let's just tell you what, my wife despises it. <laughs> um, thank you so much for having me this morning. I'm from Georgia right now. Um, my wife's from Australia, so I say right now. Uh, and I called my wife last night, and I told her, uh, 
Well, it's 84 degrees where she's at right now. Just wanted to let you know, folks know that, okay? <laughs> but I grew up in Michigan, so this is, this is really a welcome home. Um, yeah, 11 kids. I'm not sure I want to go home. I'll tell you a little, little bit about myself. Um, before I was a foster parent, I really didn't know much about foster care or about foster children. I had a few misconceptions. Those misconceptions were, A, foster kids were troublesome. It was their fault they're in care. And second of all, foster parents are weird people. I got one thing right. Foster parents are very, very weird people. Do I have any foster parents in here? Okay, we have to be weird to do what we do. Um, so I was teaching English and drama, uh, in a rural town in Georgia. My wife and I moved back from America, I'm sorry, back from Australia. And at the time I was doing this wrestling thing, um, traveling all across country doing wrestling. I was the bad guy. I was the guy that, I was the guy, I was a manager. So my job was to get in the microphone and, uh, insult the crowd, help the bad guy cheat. So the good guy, so the crowd would cheer the good guy. That was my job. Um, but I was also teaching English and drama at a rural high school in Georgia. And I was watching these children come into my classroom day after day after day in a very poverty-stricken area. And I would ask myself, why are these children acting the way that they do? They had these behavior issues. And then I met some of their birth parents and realized, aha, this is why they're acting some of the way they do. So I went home and I asked my wife, what do you think about being a foster parent? It's funny how God works. Uh, she had been thinking along the same lines as well. God had planted the seed in both of our brains independently, separately. We did not know that, but we came together and we talked about it. So we began foster parenting. Um, from there, I was watching these many children come into my home. I've had over 45 children come through my home over the past 12 years. Um, some as young as 27 hours of age, some as old as um, 18 years of age. In fact, there's a picture of my family uh, right there, right there. Can you tell which ones are adopted? <laughs> I had, the, I had the, uh, the younger three. My children call each other the chocolate children and the vanilla children. <laughs> I, had the, I had the three younger children with me a few months ago at an at a, at event, at a football event. And this lady's just staring at me. She's just staring, just staring at me. I could just, just staring. Finally, she said, I they your children? I said, yes, ma'am. I have really recessive genes. <laughs> so I did my... Um, I was watching these children come through my home, and they were really suffering with academics and with behavior at school. So I wrote my dissertation on, on foster children in public schools, uh, and then I've written several books. So, so that's led to, to this. So I've really devoted my life to children in need. These past, these, these, uh, the youngest three I've adopted here, the middle one there, um, she came to us when she was five days old. She was a crack child. Um, I live in a very small town of 2,000 people, and her mother was from that town. Do not know who the biological father is. Six, six different men were tested for, to be the father, and all six tested negative. Um, adopted her when she was 22 months of age. Um, the, the two on either side are biological sisters from the same mother. Their mother is the only prostitute in my town. And I did not want to adopt those children. Did not want to adopt them because 
my first child, our first child died of a disease called anencephaly or anencephaly, which means the brain does not form. And um, so years later, my three other children, I had three healthy children. So I did not want to adopt this one when she came up for adoption, specifically because I felt God had already blessed me with three healthy children and there are other people who could not have children. So this child needed to go to somebody else. But God had a different plan. So we adopted the, the middle one there. The two other ones, um, same thing. I didn't want to adopt them as well. But that reason was because I thought that would be six children. You know, that's five girls. That's five weddings. <laughs> and you think that's funny. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, we adopted them this past uh, August. And their mother just had a baby two weeks ago. I don't say no to adopting anymore because I'm always wrong. So we'll see what happens there. Um, you know, there's a, there's a scripture verse I want to share with you here real quick. And I got to put on my reading glasses because my eyes just get so bad. All right. It's from Psalms 127. It's chapter 127, verse 3. And it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. There are those people out there, there are those parents out there who do not believe that children are a gift from God, who do not believe that they are a reward. We had a four-year-old boy come to us. Actually, he, came, he, he, he and his sister came to us. He was four, his sister was 18 months of age. Um, no, I'm sorry, she was, she was six months of age. I get, I, you have 45 kids after a while, you get them mixed up after a while. You know, when you, do, you know what you do when you have 11 children in the house and you're upset with one of them and you say, you, you, whatever your name is. So um, a four-year-old came to us and his six-month-old sister. His six-month-old sister was a meth baby. In fact, two, my, three, my, my, uh, my oldest adoptive is a crack baby. My baby is a meth baby, and my other child is a uh, fetal alcohol syndrome baby. These children come to this. They suffer from the sins of their parents. So this little meth baby, uh, if you're not familiar with meth, menace, meth is such a heinous, heinous drug. It is horrific. I call it the family destroyer. One take of meth by the, by the abuser rewires the brain the first time. And the more times it is taken, the more the brain is rewired permanently. In fact, those people who are addicted to meth, meth is more important to them than food or water. All they concentrate is on meth. So imagine what happens to a baby in the womb who is on meth. They become, their brain is so rewired, doctors are finding out now that they'll be highly agitated and frustrated for the rest of their life. How does a four-month-old baby show agitation and frustration as well as going through withdrawal symptoms of the drug? Well, they just scream. They scream, 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 scream. For 20 of the 24 hours of the day, they scream. The other four hours, they're sleeping, but very fretfully sleeping. So I have a scream. There's nothing that you can do to pacify this baby. There's nothing you can do to pacify a crack or meth child when they're going through withdrawals. You can't comfort them. You can't hold them. You can't feed them. You can't sing to them. There's nothing that you could do. They just scream because their body is racked with so much pain as the drugs are being withdrawn through their body. So I'm holding the four-month-old baby, and at that time, I had four other children in the house taking care of them, and my wife is doing what she normally does with a foster child. 
first of all, we give them a plate of homemade chocolate chip cookies and a glass of milk. Because I want you to picture this. Picture a four-year-old child who is taken from his mother, taken from his father, taken from his siblings, his stuffed animals, his toys, his pets, his bedroom, his house, his home, his yard, his neighborhood, his friends, his grandparents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, his schoolmates if he's going to school, his church members if he's going to church, taken from everything he knows, everything he knows, and thrust into a strange home with strange people and said, here you go, we'll see you later. And that child has to deal with that. It is incredibly, incredibly traumatic. As a foster parent, I get the same questions. The first few nights of a foster parent for me are probably the worst. Because I have to ask her questions such as, when am I going home? I don't know. When will I see my mom next? I don't know. How long am I here? I don't know. I miss my mom. I know you do. Does my mom love me? Yes, she loves you. I want to go home. I know you do. And I hold these children night after night, those first few nights, as they cry themselves to sleep. And there's not one word that I can say to comfort that child. Not one. My wife hates the nights that they leave. Because we become so attached to these children, they become our children, and we love them unconditionally. That when they leave, my wife grieves heavily for them, and I do too. But nonetheless, we give, them, we give them a plate of chocolate chip cookies and a glass of milk, and then she goes to give the children a bath. Because for some of the children, it might be their first bath they've had in a very long time. So she's bathing the child, and I'm holding the child in the kitchen, and I hear my wife call me, John. I said, I'll be there in a minute. She says, John. I said, yes, just a minute. She says, John. And I can hear the urgency in her voice. So I go in the bathroom, I give the baby to my oldest daughter, go in the bathroom, and there's my wife. And she is a chatterbox. She won't be, she won't be upset if I tell you that. She's a chatterbox. She loves to chat. But she was speechless. She had no words. There were tears streaming down her face. And I said, what's wrong? What's wrong? And she just said, she could say nothing. She just pointed to the child's head. I said, what? She said, look. So I looked down at the child, blonde hair. I said, I don't see anything. And she parted back the child's hair. And there were many, many, many small black circular dots on his scalp. I said, what are they? My wife said, cigarette burns. I said, what? Cigarette burns. His mother had burned him with cigarettes. Now, why would she do it on the scalp? To hide the evidence. But that is not the only place that she hid the evidence. The boy had cigarette burns on his tongue, on the roof of his mouth, and on his genitals. His mother, his mother, his mother, the person who's supposed to protect him from all the evils of the world, the person who's supposed to shield them from harm, is burning her own son with cigarette burns on his tongue. Could you imagine? That boy was with us for four months. He showed no emotion. It was like talking to this. There was no shock. There was no anger. There was no frustration. There was no joy, no curiosity, no happiness. 
No, nothing. He showed motion one time, and I write about that in my book. I'm not going to bore you with that right now, but one time he showed emotion. The rest of the time, no emotion. We have 11 kids right now. 11. Oh, my goodness. I just, just sang it sometimes, me. I am so far, so far above the Brady Bunch level, and I do not have an Alice, and I will pay for the ticket for someone to come home and be my Alice if they want. My wife tells me that she needs a wife right now. <laughs> you cannot imagine the laundry in our house. It's not, and someone said to me the other night, you need an industrial-sized uh, washing machine. Yeah, we already have that, and it's not doing anything right now. It's just... <laughs> so we have these five. Um, when uh, it, was, it was last March 2013, we got a phone call. At the time, we just had six. Just six. Um, we had our four... Plus, we had the other two um, biological sisters, but we had not adopted them at that point. We were going, still going through the... Well, at that point, we weren't considering really adoption. My wife was, but I was not. Um, so we got the phone call, and the caseworker called up and said, Dr. John, there's a child in care. Will you take a child? And I said, well, let me call you back. I'll pray about it with my wife, because we always pray about this decision. Pray about it, and I'll call you back and let you know. She said, okay. So we prayed about it. And my wife, has said, my wife has said for the past six years, every time a child leaves, she says, I'm never doing that again. Because she says it because she grieves so much when the children leave the house. It's not because it is a difficult job. It is the hardest thing that I do. It really is. Because when you're dealing with children with various traumas, it's very, very hard. Um, but uh, she said yes, like she always does. Because when the phone call comes and there's a child in need my wife can't say no. So I called the caseworker back and said, yes, we'll take one. The caseworker said, well, if you take one, will you take two? I said, okay, we'll take two. If you take two, will you take three? I said, no more. That's it. No more. <laughs> At this point, I'm thinking, how am I going to transport nine kids in the car? We put the babies in the glove compartment. <laughs> so... There was a group of five siblings. Two children went to another home, the two youngest ones. There was a, we took a 13-year-old boy, 11-year-old girl, and a 10-year-old boy, and the 6-year-old the girl and 7-year-old girl went to another home. So when they came to us, they had the normal look that a foster child has, one of fear. They're, every time they come, well, with the exception of one time, they are completely afraid completely afraid. They have a look, the deer in the headlight look, that is never, I never get used to. The caseworker told me the same thing the three different deputies I've spoken to about this case the past year have told me the same thing. It was the most horrific experience they'd ever seen. The children came from a home that had no, no water, no heat, no food, no plumbing, no electricity. There were holes in the wall, and you could not see the floor in the house because it was covered with human and dog feces, the entire house. They found the mother on a bed with two teenage boys, her boyfriends, with a seven-year-old girl. The bed was covered in feces, could not see the beds, bedspread. Again, the three different deputies uh, have told me this separately as well as a caseworker. Um, 
there was meth lab in the house. The father at the time was not the father of any of the children, but the husband was someplace else. The 13-year-old boy was the lookout for the police in the broken down car out front. His job by his mother was to look out for the police when they came. The other children were scattered throughout the neighborhood because mom would place them in different homes in case they came to get her. This was during the school day. None of the children were in school. The 13-year-old boy, I actually happened to work in the school system, and I knew the 13-year-old boy by reputation. He was, without doubt, the worst-behaved student in school. He was in fights every single day. He was one step away from being placed in the juvenile detention center. Um, his list of, of, um, of um, behavior record was very, very long. I was able to look it up. Uh, but he was very, 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 very smart. So smart. At the same time, he was failing all of his classes because he was never in school. Tremendous discipline issue. The girl had been raped numerous times by numerous boyfriends of the mother. The 10-year-old boy had something called reactive attachment disorder, uh, which does not allow him. It's a disorder. Actually, the girl has it too, different form. They can't form a healthy relationship with an adult. They cannot because they do not know how to form a healthy relationship to an adult. They will cling to any of you the moment they see you. They'll give you a hug, but they can't get beyond that. They cannot form a healthy relationship with an adult. So we took them in for, for a few days. Uh, for some reason, my heart really went out to these children in particular. And I grew to love them very quickly. Four days into it, the caseworker called up and said, Dr. John, Children are leaving. I said, oh, oh, where, why? What's happened? Well, their uncle came down from Maryland, and the judge said they can take them back. I said, I didn't know. And the caseworker said, well, we didn't know either. It was spur of the moment. I said, well, I'm really upset by this, but tell me a little bit about the uncle. Um, I said, when are they leaving? She said, they've already left. I said, they left? They've left? I didn't get to say goodbye to these children? I have all these clothes for them. I need to tell you that uh, the only thing they brought to them to our house was the clothes in their back that were stapled together. And we had to take the, by, by uh, the caseworker's orders, we had to take them off uh, before they came in the house, and we had to burn the clothes because they were so contaminated with feces, lice, and scabies. So uh, I asked about the uncle, talking about the uncle. Well, the uncle's a former foster child. He's been abused by his mother. He's living with his mother, who abused him. He has two children from a previous marriage, and he's taking all five of these plus these two kids of his own, makes seven children, and he's 21 years old. I said, 21 years old? 21? How can a, how can a 21-year-old male take care of seven children? I mean, Jesus was 33 years old when he died. This guy's only 21. I felt grief-stricken. I tell you, I cried for days because I thought those children are lost. They're lost. There's no way they're going to survive. Six months later, we got a phone call from the caseworker. They were coming back in the state of Georgia because their uncle had beaten them, abandoned them. Their grandmother was beating them every day. She abandoned them, and now they're coming back into care. So we took the three back. And then last, a couple weeks ago, the foster parents of the other two children said, we need a break so we took them in as well. So there's 11 children. Is it hard? It is awfully, awfully hard. The 10-year-old boy screams every single night 
for about two hours. He has uncontrollable rage. You cannot reason with him whatsoever. He'll drop of a pencil. His falls off the desk. He'll start going into a rage about it. The 11-year-old girl will knock on the door of my daughters when they're showering and ask for hugs all the time because of her tremendous sexual abuse history. She's always looking for some type of physical contact with a stranger. It's very disturbing. The 13-year-old boy, now all a student, he is in the wrestling team, the debate team, the cross-country team, he sings in the church choir with me. It really shows me that it's a, it's a change of environment. But it is, it is incredible what these children go through. I'm going to share with you the story that I've not shared with other foster parents yet. <sighs> ten years ago, ten years ago, um, we got a phone call from a caseworker. Now, my wife was in Australia at the time. Uh, I need to tell you this, that when you have six children in the house right now, and it's a 32-hour trip to go to Australia, and it's $2,000 a ticket, and you have a total of eight people, and that's $16,000 to see my mother-in-law? <laughs> I don't go every time, okay? <laughs> so, um, my wife went to Australia. She took our son with us at the time. He was only three. And it was August, my, and my other two daughters are in school. So my wife left on a Tuesday. I got a phone call on a Thursday. And the caseworker said, can you take a girl? I said, how old is she? Seven-year-old girl. I said, why is she in care? Well, she's in care because her mother is a drug abuser and is in and out of the house. Her dad's not in the picture. She's living with her alcoholic grandmother who abuses her. She's been sexually abused. She's been raped at that point. Uh, in the morning, she'll take out the frozen hot dogs out of the freezer, put them in the microwave for breakfast. 50% of the time, she gets to school. When she does go to school and come home, she'll take more microwave hot dogs out of the freezer, put in the microwave, and that's dinner for her. And she stumbles into bed at some point during the night. The entire time, when the grandmother's not beating her, she's drunk on the couch. I said, okay, how long is she in care for? They said, it's just the weekend. I said, well, let me call my wife up. So I called her in Australia. And I said, hey, you know, here's the situation. My wife said, well, if it's just for the weekend, you know, I'm not there. Do you think you can do it? I said, yes, I can do it. This is my second placement at the time. And I'm thinking I'm super foster guy. I can do this. I can do this. Yes. Hear me roar. I can do it. So I said, okay. So I called the caseworker up. That's Thursday night. Friday, my two daughters and I, my daughter, kindergarten, first grade, we go down in the car and meet the girl, seven-year-old girl. And I said, Hi. My name is Daddy, she said. I love you, Daddy. And I said, oh, well, how are you? And what's your name? My name's Cindy, Daddy. I love you. I said, well, that's great. Good, good for you. I'm, come on, my house. I love my new house. I love everything. And my, my two daughters are just staring at me like, what's going on, Daddy? What's going on? Who is this girl? Three weeks later, my wife comes home from Australia, and I went to pick her up. It was a long trip. It was about 42 hours, a couple layovers. And it was 1230 at night, and my wife is like this, and my son is like this, the airport. And I give my wife a big hug, and my two daughters give her a big hug, and my wife's just like, yeah, let's just go home. Let's just go home. And all of a sudden, my wife hears these 
extra pair of arms going around her, and the, and the voice said, Mommy! And my wife looks down, and then she looked at me. <laughs> and I said, it's a long weekend. <laughs> a year and a half later, girls stayed with us for a year and a half. And every day, well, I shouldn't say every day, every week I was at that school at least once a week at her school. She was stealing she was a food hoarder. Most children in foster care are food hoarders because they've never had, um, they've never had a consistent meal. So they developed this food hoarding where they just steal food. Even if you have a table full of food as a foster parent, they just sneak it up into their room. That's what they do. Lied all the time. Um, reactive attachment disorder. We could not form a, a healthy relationship with her. Um, very, very difficult. But you know what? I loved her unconditionally. This was my child. I loved her. Three days before Christmas, I got a phone call. And they said, well, her aunt and uncle from Florida want to take her. I said, ah, okay, all right, uh, this is okay. Well, as foster parents, we don't have any rights. I said, okay, all right, well, when will you take her? Uh, tomorrow. I said, December 23rd? He said, yes. I said, please wait till after Christmas. Please, after Christmas, at least December 26th. If you have to, December 25th at night. But let her wake up in the morning on Christmas morning and be with people that she knows instead of people she's only met once in her life so long ago. Christmas morning with strangers. Let her do that, please. He said, no. I said, but we have all these presents for her. Now, most children in care, I need to tell you this. Most children in foster care have never had a birthday celebrated they have never had a holiday celebrated. The 10-year-old boy we have right now, it was his birthday recently. We make birthdays a big event at our house, big event, particularly for the foster children. We had to teach the 10-year-old child how to open up a present. Now think about that, how to open up a present. And when he opened up the present, he said, is this mine? Yes. Can I keep it? Yes. We had a, about 12 presents for him. And H1, can I keep it? Can I keep it? Is it mine? So the case, so December 23rd, I took the girl to the, um, to the child welfare system. My wife stayed at home with other, other children. She would not go because she was so teary-eyed. And I met the aunt and uncle. And I tell you, I was wrong. I know I was so wrong. I looked at them and I thought, this is not right. This is not good. I judged them by their appearance, and that is so wrong, and I understand that, and I have asked forgiveness for that. And I gave the girl a big hug. I told her that I love her, said goodbye, gave her a picture of us with her on it, and the back of it had our address and her phone number, and I said goodbye. Never thought I'd see her again. Four years later, my wife and I are packing, to go the next day back to Australia to a wedding, and the phone rings, and I pick up the phone about 6 o'clock at night. I pick up the phone. I said, hello. And I hear the voice, Daddy? I said, Sydney? I said, where are you? She had been raped by her aunt and uncle. She had been beaten severely day after day, week after week, year after year, taken to Alabama, and abandoned. She came into care in Alabama. We talked to the foster parents for a while. Uh, my heart's just pounding like this. Couldn't believe it. We uh, told the caseworker, that we told the, the foster parent that 
we want to stay in touch with her. When we get back from Australia, can we call her up? Can we come visit her? Can she come visit us? The foster mother said, I need to tell you that she's very, very, very difficult. At this point, she's about 12 years old. Very, very difficult. Uh, she runs away a lot. She's, she's, uh, she's, just, she's just difficult. Behavior problems. We said, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. We love her. This is our child. We want to see her. When we come back, let us call her. Foster mother said, okay, no worries. Came back from Australia three weeks later. Went in the house. First thing I did was I pick up that phone, called that, that foster mother up, and she'd already been moved to a group home. The foster mother did not know the name of the group home. It was five years ago. The past five years, I spent a half an hour online trying to find her. Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, emails, internet searches, you name it. I type in everything about her that I know trying to find her because I want her to know that she is cared for, that she is important, and most importantly, that she is loved. Because if she's where I think she is in a group home type environment, in a lockdown facility, then she is not hearing that. When most children in foster care turn 18 years of age, they age out of the system. They leave the system. And they have no family. No one to contact, no one to sing them happy birthday, no one to call them when they have a flat tire, no one to invite them over for Thanksgiving. 65% of foster children who turn age, 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 uh, age 18 and age out uh, end up homeless. 75% end up in jail. A uh, tremendous amount end up in pregnant by age 18, the second child by the age 19. The statistics are very, 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 very grim for these children. I did not want her to become a statistic. I've been praying for her every single morning. A year ago, I contacted the president of the Alabama Foster Parent Association, and I said, help me find her, please. In fact, I've got a book coming out in, uh, in September, and I, I, I talk all about this. Uh, a week and a half ago, I got a phone call from the Alabama foster parent. And he said, I think I found her. I said, oh. Okay, all right, all right, okay, okay. My heart's just... And remember, at this time, I had 11 kids in the house, and it's just chaos, and I'm supposed to be going to... A half an hour from now, I'm supposed to be going to a church meeting where I'm an elder at our church for, for a meeting, um, and uh, I'm really having a hard time focusing on what he's saying. I said, okay, all right, uh, okay, what do I do? He said, well, call this person up. So he gave me the number of this caseworker, and I called up. I said, hey, this is Dr. Johnny Garmo. She said, hi, how are you? I said, I'm good, I'm good. Do you know why I'm calling? And she said, yes. I said, do you know where Sydney is? And she said, she said, yes. And I burst out crying. Because since I've been a foster parent, I'm an emotional cripple, I'm sorry. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. And I kept telling the person, I'm so sorry. Okay. So, ah! do you know where she is? Yes, she's in a group facility. She's in a group facility. She's in 24-hour lockdown. She's tried to commit suicide numerous times. They have, she has nobody um, to call family. Um, no, no foster parents. No, there's nobody for her. She has no reason to live, the caseworkers tell me, and she, um, she's given up on life. And I just bawled. I mean, I just lost it. 
The next night, we arranged for her to call us. She can call us for five minutes a night. So she called us that night, that next night for five minutes. I spent four and a half of those minutes doing what? What do you think I was doing? Yeah, I was just crying like a baby. My gosh, it was terrible. The worst conversation I ever had on the phone call. Okay, okay. It was awful. Just lost it. So my wife and I are going to Alabama uh, in two weeks to, to meet her and maybe bring her back into our home. And I understand how difficult it's going to be, but we may be adopting another child. I don't know yet. She went to Royal Family Kids Camp back in Georgia 10 years ago. And I remember it vividly when she came back from the camp. At the time, I wasn't really aware of the camp program. But when she came back, in the year and a half that she was with us, it was truly the happiest I had ever seen her. And for her, it was her first time where she was able to start healing. So many of these children, as a foster parent, I have to go through the day-to-day routine with them of getting up in the morning and the battles that they have with their, with their rage and their other issues they have um, and getting them to school and coming home. And then when they have a visitation from their mother and they come back visiting their mother and their mother's filled them with false lies and false hopes, like you're going to come back to me tomorrow. Don't listen to your foster parents. They don't really love you. I'm going to be taking you back next week. All these lies. Um, uh, It's very hard for my wife and I to... allow these children to just be children, so to speak, because they've got their regular routine. But when they go to these camps, when they go to Royal Family Kid Camp, it might be, it truly might be the very first time that this child has laughed. I want you to think about that. The first time a child has laughed. It could be the first time a child has smiled. The 10-year-old boy I have in the house right now has been with us truly. He came to us originally in March of last year. He has never smiled in my house. Never smiled in my house. 10-year-old boy, not even on his birthday, not even at Christmas. For these children, it is one week where they can go and escape the horrors that they face on a daily basis. For that little boy years ago who was burned on his mouth with a cigarette, his tongue, his genitals, his scalp, he's going to think about that. That's going to be with him for the rest of his life. And if he is given the opportunity to go away to a camp where he can be a boy and he can play, that to me as a foster parent is the greatest gift that I can think of for that child that I unfortunately can't give to him. I wish that I could. We do not have a Royal Family Kids Camp in my area of Georgia. When, my, when Sydney went years ago, I had to travel about two and a half hours to take her there. I wish that my five children right now had the opportunity to go. They do not. We heard earlier how sometimes when the adults go to camp, they get more out of it. You know, the, you know the saying, it is better to give than to receive? I can assure you that if you volunteer and go to Royal Family Kids Camp, you will be the one who is receiving. 
you're going to receive a whole lot more than you are going to give. Yes, you're going to give the opportunity for these children to be a child, to forget about their horrors, to forget about the traumas, but you are going to come back changed and, trans- and, and transferred. I certainly have as a foster parent 12 years. If you, would ask me, if you would ask me years ago, would I be doing this? I'd say absolutely not. If you said, I would, if you said I'd be adopting children, left and right it seems, I'd have said absolutely not. I used to think that four kids was a lot. Then I used to think six kids was a lot. I thought nine kids was a lot. You know, so now it's like, oh, what the heck? <laughs> so if you told me things, but it is by far, even though it is the hardest thing I do, it is the most rewarding thing that I do without a shadow of a doubt. There are days I wake up and I am just tired. I am exhausted and I have to lean heavily on God for me to make it through that day. There's many a morning when I pray, God, I cannot do this today. I need you, please, to give me your strength and your compassion and your wisdom and your love. And I am a far different person and a far better person for taking in these children into my home. I understand that not everybody can be a foster parent. I get that. 500,000 children in care in America. So few foster parents. What these children have in Erie, Pennsylvania is the opportunity to last a lifetime for these children. This camp is something, I can assure you this, this camp is something that will change them and transform them for the rest of their life. They may never have this opportunity to do so again. We met yesterday a boy at one of the juvenile detention centers who was a Royal Family Kid Camp member. And when, when he was recognized, when Joel Miller recognized him as a member of the camp, the boy's face just lit up with a huge smile. It was very obvious to me that he had many positive and happy memories of it. I'm asking you to prayerfully consider giving some of your money or giving some, more importantly, giving some of your time to it. It is six days for you. It is a lifetime for these children. You may not see you may not see the change you put in these children's lives during that week. There is that possibility. But you can believe this. It's much like gardening. You plant a seed. You are giving the soil to the seed with a camp. You're going to water the seed. You're going to water the seed with your tears. And you're going to bring warmth to that seed. You're going to bring warmth to the seed with your love. And at some point, that seed that you have helped plant and God has given you all the necessary tools to to water it and give it warmth, at some point, that seed is going to blossom into something better, something that you have done. I want to leave you with this other, other verse here. It's from... The book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. There are many children who do not know the kingdom of God. You can bring that kingdom to them and change their lives forever. 
At the same time, you'll be changed too. Amen.